we're going to be taking through the progress of our black comedy feature film. Who are you, by the way? Nobody, nobody knows who we are. <laughs> what this is, is a DIY cinema podcast for DIY filmmakers. The idea is that you don't wait for permission, you just start. This is our first feature film, something we're going to do together. Uh, you're going to get it warts and all. <laughs> <laughs> so we just go into it. I kind of think we could. This is DIY Cinema Cult. Hello, Mark. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm good. Yes. Uh, isolation cast. Number three, four. We're a couple in, yeah. Uh, think, number three think... in isolation. This is episode number I... uh, eight of what? DIY Cinema Cult. That means actually this is isolation cast four. Oh, right. Because our We've first one was prolific. number five. Yeah. We've been very prolific in our uh, lockdown in terms of podcasts. Seen as the first couple we recorded over the space of quite a long period. Yeah. And now we've think... suddenly become very energized by the time we have on our hands well it's, it's amazing the lure of being uh, alone in a room with your headphones on talking nonsense to a colleague and friend yeah. with a with a drink in your hand is in times with little children in the house 24 7 and uh, lots of dishwashing to do I know. I mean, I have been going, starting to go a little bit stir crazy. And in a way, I have on occasion doubted that this podcast actually exists. And maybe yeah. I just go into my bedroom and, and talk to the screen uh, yeah, yeah. for an hour or so and drink a gin under, yeah. the, un, un, under the mental illusion that I'm actually recording a podcast with you. But yeah. I hope you can maybe alleviate my my worries there this is a real podcast is it not we are it's a, re- doing it's a real this. podcast and we've had okay, good. real people actually listen to it um good okay good is is a testament to that we've had certainly in the hundreds of members now and people posting their own films um so that's been really interesting isn't it sort of seeing yeah, people's lovely. take on the kind of diy film idea on the facebook group and there's been some really interesting stuff there's been theatre directors uh, that we've kind of had contact with posting their stuff and uh, a fantastic film was a great stuff Mancunian punk poet that was shot on dv camera and all sorts of interesting stuff lots of lovely weird weird bits and pieces yeah and you've had a funny uh you had a bit of a weird communication the other day regarding your documentary didn't you not well yeah i think what what i'm realizing is that um when you start putting things out there in any form or another so when you make something or you are you're in the in the middle of making something there's always that fear that someone else is doing the same thing somewhere else being diy you know we're doing things in a kind of step-by-step process we don't have armies of of different people kind of helping out with all of the big the, the huge amount of collaborative processes that have to happen in a in a filmmaking project but I had a, an email from a, a well-established uh, production company asking to see the trailer. And, of course, I made a trailer in order to, yeah. um, to show off the capability of, of my, my ideas and to uh, really to get across the kind of film's concept. Uh, and I was very torn because what do you do? Do you show your ideas to people that are potentially professional rivals in some way or yeah. another? 
So, yeah. I mean, have you ever had anything like this where suddenly an idea of yours is out there and maybe you have professional rivals that are kind um, of... I mean, I had a funny... Or... I mean, maybe not in the same way that suddenly you have quite a large production company kind of vying for the same subject matter and yeah. possibly interviews like like you've got. But I did have a similar experience. On the, on the very last uh, shoot day of the Chewing Gun Man documentary... Uh, I actually wasn't able to go there, so I had to kind of hire a friend of ours um, to to go and shoot the uh, an event uh, for me. And she arrived, and there was another crew there who'd apparently been filming oh. uh, the same subject for the last year and a bit, which I know oh. I had no uh, I had not been made uh, aware of, which was quite oh. interesting. But um, but if you know things like that happen when you sometimes subject your subject matter has numerous interests from various angles yeah. many people want to make films on them it just i mean i was lucky in the sense that my film was this was the last thing i was shooting my film was already finished i was just making an addition yeah to basically the in the bag so yeah it was in the bag so my film was done and dusted so i was able to get mine out there quicker than the other crew who are currently possibly still are filming and maybe they have a plan to shoot with the chewing gum man for 10 years or something i have no idea but um yeah i've had a similar similar experience it's it's a very tricky one because obviously we nobody particularly in documentary you don't own your subject no um no, you know, right. no money is paid i mean i'm sure that there is money paid in in large series for people's kind of uh, time and, and effort but i think it's an understood um idea that if you're making a documentary, you shouldn't pay your contributor because if you do that, it changes the nature of the relationship. You're no longer documenting the uh, the subject's uh, story. What you instead, what you're doing is you're asking them to be a supplier for you in some fashion. So, yeah. So obviously, no money changes hands, and you're doing it through goodwill. But um, at the same time. Um, you know, uh, there are, I suppose, a to a certain extent, a bunch of filmmakers with a uh, a bunch of ears and eyes to the ground. Yeah, I mean, this is why I didn't worry too much. I didn't get too offended or kind of upset by the fact that uh, yeah, the chewing gum man had multiple crews following him around that I wasn't privy to. Because at the at the end of the day, he's an artist, and when people are interested in him and want to kind of promote his uh, what he has to say in some way through a film or through an interview or through whatever it is. He's going to take the opportunity because he is an artist who wants to get his work yep. out there, his ideas out there and share them amongst people. It would. I just then had to realize that, right, if I want my film to have any kind of impact, then I need to get my film out first you know Pronto, yeah. and, like, and like you like you said i i didn't i wasn't able to claim any kind of own ownership over him as a subject matter there's no exclusivity there so then you just have to be quick right in order yep. to get your idea out there for your film out there first so this should go on our manifesto in some way just be first <laughs> yeah i mean if, by if any you, means necessary by any means necessary i mean there's interesting that um, it's almost like as soon as you come up with an idea for a documentary th these days or even a narrative thing and you look yeah. around for it, it feels like sometimes they're already done. Like um, I was very, uh, I, liked, I loved the uh, documentary, The Fire Festival that happened quite recently. Oh, brilliant. The, yeah, it was fantastic. And of course there was two simultaneous documentaries about the same thing. And both of them yeah. were actually pretty good. And I actually watched both of them and they both had their their kind of upsides. And actually, yeah. of course, usually you... I didn't know well, about the other one, yeah. Yeah, well, one, one was on one provider and one was on another provider. So in a right, way, right. it was um, the battle of the providers. 
But it goes to show that actually, if the story is good enough, potentially, you know, there can be two, three, four documentaries about it. And there's still a lot of, um, you know, meat mm. on the bone for, for, for the kind of watcher, the, you know, the viewer. Um, but I noticed that there's there's an unfolding story right now, a lockdown story, which I thought, oh, that's a documentary waiting to be made about a similar thing to the fire Festival, which is there was this um, uh, festival in Panama called mm. Tribal Gathering, which finished about a week uh, or two uh, into <clears throat> the lockdown kicking in. So there was a sort mm. of idyllic kind of cult-like um, you know, hippie kind of commune thing, having this amazing festival, and then the lockdown happened, and they all got stuck on oh, this no. desert island. And this was—I was like, "Wow, this is an amazing idea for a documentary." And it sounds like the start of a horror movie. Actually, a start of a horror it? movie, yeah. But actually, today I saw <laughs> Vice have already made the documentary and released it. Oh my! How the god. hell did they even do it in lockdown? I've got no idea. Oh my god! Well, so speaking of horror, actually, in a very pro uh, link. Yes. I'm about to pull off. Very we have pro. a guest coming on, right? We have a guest oh. coming on, um, a horror director yeah. by the name of Pran, Prano Bailey Bond. Um, yeah, I mean, this very, is great. Very, talented director. This is great because this is our second special guest that we've uh, we've had. Guest. We're turning into like a real show with yeah. guests coming on. Russell Brand, eat your heart out, you know, <laughs> goodness me. Um, but Prano is going to be great to talk to because she's a very prolific uh, and uh, stylish filmmaker. She's certainly working yeah. predominantly in the kind of horror genre. Um in a way, it's great because she's sort of, sort of female director and she's really getting a kind of a name for herself. So it'd be great to find out, uh, you know, her process and uh, what kind of mm. um, how she's managing to get movies off the ground looking so yeah. stylish as well. I mean, yeah. her films look slick, right? Very slick. And it's, I mean, real attention to detail, amazing locations. It's, they're always cast brilliantly and they look fantastic. And like you say, she's been very, very prolific mm. in short films, music videos. And now she's literally wrapping up. We'll ask her where she is in the production process, but yeah. she's finishing up on a debut feature, right? Which is where we want to be in, you know, maybe a year's time or so. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll be interviewing ourselves on this podcast. <laughs> Say we just finished routine if we ever get out of our bedrooms and sheds, of course. <laughs> but it'd be interesting to find out her process now. She is working remotely on the post production of a feature film in yes. lockdown, right? So I mean, I want I want to ask her as well because I do feel I, it brings a bell in my mind that she was writing remotely. I do oh, seem yeah. to remember seeing posts of hers on Facebook or what have you. But I'll I'll ask her about that. That's just popped into my mind. You are listening to the debut feature film podcast. This is DIY Cinema Cult. Ah, here she is. <laughs> hey, how's it going? We're very We're good. Very How are you? Good, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Long good. time no see. Great. I know. Your, <laughs> your ears must have been burning. We were just talking about you. <laughs> I like how um, professional your mic setup. Yours is sounding good, though. Yours is sounding good. That's is the it? most. Imp that's the most I important thing. It. I've got my phone and I've got an app and I've got a cable. Yeah, it sounds good. It sounds yeah. fine. I have it's to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds completely fine. Shall we start, Prana? We'll start by. I, I want to ask you where, just so so people listening can can have the backstory where we all met met. Well, me and you met 
quite a long time ago now, right? Years ago, doing Film London, wasn't it? it was yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was thinking about that earlier. Actually, it was two thousand. It must have been two thousand and ten. Yes, I think. God, showing yeah. our age. So ten years, <laughs> and we were on the um, Film London Borough scheme. That's right. And and I think we had to go. We were like in the running to get it. Yes. So we had to go to like these rooms and do exercises together. We did. It was like a kind of a, it was kind of like an NA meeting, wasn't it? We all sit in chairs yeah. around a circle. Yeah. And do things like, you know, you've got cards with all the departments on you, you have to put the departments yes. in like all important and stuff That's like that. Right. I and remember. we're all there and like bright-eyed filmmakers hoping that we get through. And I think me and you and a group of other people got down to the last I got down to the last 10 yeah um with the project I'd gone in with and then didn't get the funding but they called me to direct a project that didn't have a director so I did yes. end up making one but not the one I was planning to make that's right that's right and, and I mean you know because I mean I did one of these about three years later I remember Mark did his um Best Bobs, they were called, I think, at the time. And then I think I did the first year where they changed the name to the slightly hipper London Calling. I think it was about three years afterwards. Um, And and I'm sort of interested to know what your thoughts are on kind of those sorts of funding things. Because obviously, if you're a kind of an independent filmmaker, we're we're kind of running out of ways to to fund these things. And particularly if you're a kind of a brand new uh, filmmaker, shorts are a great way to get in there. But what are your thoughts on things like the the London Calling and, and uh, other rapidly evaporating schemes? Yeah, I think they're 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 great, but they're you don't get on them all the time. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> they can't be the be all and end all of making a film because if you're a filmmaker who hasn't like the the competition is is steep and. Um, there's not room for everybody to be funded that way, but that doesn't mean that the other stories there aren't worth telling or the other filmmakers aren't worth supporting or being seen. Um, so I've been, you know, I've I've had numerous uh, projects rejected and then gone out and, you know, made them on my own anyway. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it is tricky because you've got things like crowdfunding that seem to have replaced you know actual film. funding yeah <laughs> so it's like you know mom dad yeah. yeah instead friends instead of of funding bodies yeah and even with some funding they're still asking you to raise some of the money yourself i think now yeah i mean i was successful on some of those schemes but i i just think i think they're really really great because they profile uh, filmmakers who are up and coming and I think lots of the industry look to those schemes for who should we be keeping an eye on yeah but I, I also don't think people should be disheartened if they don't get on that the first time I think it's about building a body of work however you can yeah um, absolutely make a name for yourself yeah. was that the first film that short that you made it through Film London short lease was that the first one you directed or was that oh you've been directing before that that was uh, no I directed um I, I'd made a short film before that called The House of Virgins which sounds like a porno but it wasn't <laughs> it was definitely not a porno <laughs> uh, which um I made off my own back after coming out of like uh, a practical filmmaking degree and I'd done a few music videos and I had a showreel basically, which yeah. is why the, the scheme came back to me and said, hey, you might suit this project. 
So um, I had a bit of work behind me, but that was the first thing I had funded. Right, got you. And a, a film of yours I really love is a shortcut that you made with Film 4. Yeah. How did that collaboration come about? Um, so they contacted me, actually. Um, I, yeah, they got in touch with me and said they were doing this scheme and they were looking for filmmakers that might fit and would want to pitch. So I put something forward and... It, so that's like the really annoying stories that you don't want to hear, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the big, big broadcaster comes along, sugar daddy, says, yes, you're allowed. They wave their magic funding wand and you go, yeah, I'm going to make a film with a knob gag in it. Yeah, Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, any, if anyone hasn't seen it, you've got to see it anyway, just because obviously it's, it's a lovely film and your films are very kind of beautifully done and, and uh, well-crafted. But there's a gruesome moment in it, which, you know, the title somewhat gives away, yeah. I have to say. And that's kind of OK, isn't yeah. it, really, I guess? Yeah, it was. I watched it again last night uh, with my girlfriend, Debbie, and she squealed. At the at the, uh, at the at the climactic you moment, that was squealing, call it. Mark. Should have been you. So you know what more? What more can you ask for? Uh, but squealed followed by lo- fell about laughing. Yeah, so there you go. That's a good combo. It's great to watch that with an audience, actually, because one of you yeah. were talking on one of your podcasts about like the importance of film festivals. Um, mm. and like seeing your work with an audience and that one I remember seeing at the Prince Charles cinema and it was packed and it was just like oh a God. delight to hear people shouting <laughs> no 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 yeah. and then laughing and cheering as well the, yeah. the bloodthirstiness of, of audiences yeah. is incredible and they're, they're like yeah he deserved that and <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a classic, and and, and it distills the idea that I think that short films often get wrong is in it's got one very simple st- sort of structural idea built into it, and you get the bloody payoff, and it's like game over after that. I just think there's something <laughs> that's a perfect short in my eyes is something that delivers exactly what it sets out to do. Yeah, and it's it, that's exactly the kind of short as well that programmers love at festivals because it's like a, just a real quick punch. It literally is a, a, a punch in the kind of deepest way. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in terms of your process, I mean, you obviously write and you direct, but I've noticed on occasion you've also done other things. You've also done a bit of editing with some of your work as well. Is that right? Yeah, um, and I think, like, because obviously, you know, you guys are looking at, like, the DIY approach, and I really feel like... Um, my editing background at the beginning of my filmmaking Mm. career was like hugely beneficial to me. Um, It was kind of something I always did because I was just interested in, you know, it's quite a satisfying thing to do editing. I've always found it satisfying. So I then ended up getting a job. My first sort of freelance job was um, editing The Apprentice Africa in Nigeria. Nice. Wow. Which gave you your taste for horror, obviously. Of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was like an incredible, you know, 10 months of just editing every single day. And yeah. I came back and I was like, well, I'm going to just edit my own work, basically. And, and the time that you can put in, if you're asking someone to work for free on your project, then they're going to be giving you a certain amount of time. If you like, I did a music video called poltergeist and i think i spent like six months editing that music video and it is like like frame by frame like 
juddery mm. um, editing style. It's quite like choppy and stuff. But I don't think anybody else would have wanted to sit and do that for six months for no money. <laughs> No, and talking about the DIY uh, ethic of the whole thing, Poltergeist, didn't you play all of the roles in the film as well? You were in that, you were literally five or six different characters within that film, right? Yeah, and actually that was born from the scheme that we met on in a way because um, Ah. I had found, like we had something like three days to shoot those shorts, I think. And it was like, so, you know, it always is on set. It's such a short space of time to achieve so much and I just came off that shoot thinking oh I just want to do something where I can create a space where um I can come up with ideas and just experiment and play around and I don't have an AD saying no you don't have time and I don't have a schedule where an actor's turning up at x o'clock and so I was like how can I create this um you know, playground for myself, basically. And I thought, well, if I play all the characters myself, I don't have to involve any other actors. <laughs> um, I don't have to, like, schedule people and think about how much time they're giving me and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I had this amazing warehouse that was next door to where I was living at the time. And um, I just came up with this idea around my friend's song and uh, spent two nights in that warehouse um, with my DOP, who Annika Summerson, who I work with. She's just shot my first feature and she's made shot most of my shorts. Um, she, yeah, I basically trapped her in a warehouse for two <laughs> nights. I got a friend to come in and do some body double stuff. And I got my makeup yeah. artist who was asleep next door in my house. And I just go and wake her up and say, can you transform me into the next Amazing. character? <laughs> and um and then we'd just go and and we could have ideas that way because it was like oh wow here's a really cool mirror let's do some weird stuff with a weird lens in a mirror amazing and mm. you know let's just do this thing for like an hour and not you know oh, it was fantastic. just free it was like mm. uh, yeah. and, and I'm really yeah. proud of that piece of work it's, it sounds a little bit like what I've read about David Lynch doing a razor head and where he yeah. basically found that location that he could shoot within he could build sets in, in within the rooms and he could just he had all the time in the world to make it and it did take years but he just had freedom to play there was no time pressures there was no studio kind of bearing down on him and he just made yeah what he wanted to make you know it's the dream way to make something isn't mm. it yeah so and i get and i guess just uh quickly going back to editing i suppose the fact that you can cut I mean, if for any indie uh, kind of low-budget filmmaker or writer-director or what have you, being able to cut your own stuff does, like you say, it just gives you that freedom and it also lets you retain some kind of creative control over the, the post-process, doesn't it? Instead of having to find an editor who's going to work for not a lot of money or free or love, you have to convince them to kind of love the project as much as you do. Being able to cut yourself... Yeah that's kind of problem solved, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I I think that was a huge benefit for me when I was sort of starting. And then as I've progressed, I've absolutely loved working with editors because <laughs> yeah. it's a weird place to be when you've got a narrative piece, particularly that you have written or been a part of writing yourself and then you've directed it and then you're there and your producers have kind of gone on mm. to the next thing and you're all alone trying to work out the story. It, is, it isn't 
the easiest way to work. Um, mm. uh, and then you've got to sing the theme tune. And you've got to... <laughs> yeah. But, I, but I'm, I, I mean, I quite like editing myself and then handing it over to an editor to finish up. Because I was chatting to an editor and he was saying, you know, what often happens is directors who cut their own stuff they have burnt into their mind the blueprint of the location in which they're filming mm, yeah. in. So they will cut things geographically because that's the way it works within the room. That's the way things Particularly work. Particularly for writer-directors as yeah, well. And yeah, and an editor will just take the frame on face value and say, look, we don't need that shot where yeah. the guy will, gets up from the table. We can just do this. And so yeah. you need that fresh mind, don't you, sometimes? Totally. And we can get really like attached to the thing that basically isn't serving the story, but like these unbuilt... Uh, can't remember what filmmaker it was that talked about this um this part of his uh edit that he needed to lose but it was the the reason he wanted to tell the story in the first place at the writing stage and the end was like if we take that out you know let's try it let's take that out and remove it and he he said the story worked so much better and he called it the umbilical cord of the yeah of the film is it Walter Murch or somebody? Yeah, or it's somebody yeah. like that, isn't it? I Kill Your Babies yeah. is often the, the, the thing that's described, isn't it? But yeah. Uh, but yeah, there is always that moment of like, not that shot, yeah. please, <laughs> not that one. It's the bit which I can show off on my showreel most of all. Yeah. All the cinematographers going, but we spent ages. But we spent ages. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and, um, and yeah, I think an editor coming in with fresh eyes is going to see new ways as well to, to, to say what you're trying to say. I, I mean, that's where I am now with, with the process, but in terms of starting and being able to get films off the ground and stuff, I'm yeah. Editing myself was not only good to on a practical level, like in terms of budget and time and stuff, but also yeah. you're learning so much about what you need as a director on set. Like you're going, oh God, I should have got that cutaway because I can't get these two shots to cut together, yeah. or I didn't actually need that. Or then later when you're on set, you can go, oh, I can combine these two shots if I'm pushed for time because you just yeah. have that. Um, language sort of ingrained a little bit more in yeah. you, your Absolutely. body from physically doing it. Let's talk a little bit about your kind of interest in horror movies, because horror movies, obviously, um, it's sort of a genre which uh, which does attract quite a lot of DIY uh, cinema uh, sort of uh, makers, filmmakers. Um, so what kind of got you into horror? Why horror is your sort of main... main? I mean, you may not even call it horror, but it's... Uh, yeah, why, why is that your particular oeuvre? Yeah, and actually, again, it comes back to how me and Mark met. Um, uh, so... Um, Basically, when I got that phone call from Film London saying, hey, uh, we we haven't funded your film, but we've looked at your showreel and we can see you're a horror director. Um, would you be up for, you know, working on this horror short? And I remember thinking, am I a horror director? And I was like, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't realise. Um, I, I like rom-coms. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, the last film I made was about an old lady who's who ate a small boy's heart and then <laughs> all over herself. Maybe that's horror. Um, but um, yeah, I was, I think 
I just am drawn to dark stories, basically. I'm just interested in the um, strange, weird, dark parts of life and the mind. And I guess Mm -hmm. I've always loved horror. And I think within the landscape of horror, even though I didn't realise I was a horror filmmaker to start off with, you can kind of do anything, you know, Mm. you're not bound by the, um, the like rules of, of life, basically, as we know it, you can, it's such an imaginative genre and it's very metaphorical in terms of what you can be discussing and how, and whether that's through body horror and, you know, what's going on for us or whether it's something supernatural, like it's just the scope there for the imagination is massive. Absolutely. Uh, with with the horror genre, traditionally, there's there's kind of been uh, uh, it kind of relies a lot. It's, it's aesthetic relies a lot on the male gaze. As a director, do you feel duty bound to attack those kind of conventions, or do you feel that you can kind of use all those troop the tropes and twist them to your advantage? Um, I've always um, maybe like I'd probably separate the male gaze from tropes. I think mm. the the tropes are quite fun to play with. And there's like a language within horror that the fans understand. So you can be like, horror fans are like loyal, dedicated, knowledgeable, they've seen everything, you know? And and so there's almost like another language that goes on within horror. um, And that's fun to play with, definitely. I think the whole thing about the male gaze is tricky when you're, I don't, I don't think that's something I think about consciously, really. Um, I think naturally uh, there are things I want to avoid, like horror can be very exploitative um, yeah. and that's not something that I'm, I'm interested in. And so you might naturally like push against some of those kind of things that exist in horror, I guess. Yeah, because yeah. I guess with I was just about to say before you came on uh, about the horror genre, like it's been thought about and said famously before that with horror, the genre is the star. Uh, and there's been many famous kind of breakthrough, independent, low budget horror movies because they don't need George Clooney at the center of it, holding it all together. It's literally that the drive of that genre. Like you say, all of those kind of in jokes, inbuilt tropes, uh, conventions that the that the fans love. That's what they show up for, right? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, I think what's interesting right now about the genre is that in the last few years, it's become way more popular in the mainstream, which has given the um, given horror filmmakers like a boost in, and you, you're seeing more and more stars in in horrors right now. You have yeah. a lot more. Yeah. Um, uh, interest in horror whereas before it was like the kind of embarrassing cousin that you didn't invite to the party it, now it's a bit more like um it's take being taken a little bit more seriously i think by the industry which is exciting yeah. i think there's more of a more of an appetite for it in the mainstream mm-hmm. and that's off the back of successful films like the babadook and um hereditary know, yeah yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, I finally got round to seeing uh, Midsummer the other day, which um, I guess that's a folk horror, mm. which kind of taps into my uh, the, the films, I suppose, the horror films that I remember loving. So, you know, The Wicker Man, etc. And uh, a little bit of Don't, Don't Look Now, I suppose, is in that kind of area. 
Um, so what are the horror movies that really, you know, that you love that are kind of, you know, this is route one, two, three. These are the ones that you just think this, this is what it's all about. Um, I think The Shining is uh, up there for me just because of its incredible atmosphere. Like, I think I was actually addicted to The Shining for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> in my early 20s snorting the shining regularly yeah. yeah i was like i needed to watch it like once a week and i was happy to just have it on in the background and i was reading the book because i wanted to work out how kubrick had adapted it and i remember being mm. caught like by someone who popped around i was reading the book and watching the film at the same time and it was just like i wanted to just exist in the atmosphere of that film yeah. um, and then to be honest I, I, yeah the next two are probably uh both David Lynch films and my favorite film of all time is Blue Velvet um, oh classic and it's not it's not uh a horror film or it's not considered a horror film but to me it's a horror film yeah and I think that's because it's about um repression I remember somebody saying that horror was about the return of the repressed. And I love that, that it's this thing that we don't want to face that comes and bites us on the arse. And yeah. that to me yeah. is what Blue Velvet is, because it's about the dark side within us that we repress and the dark side within this town that's repressed. Um, mm. and, and, the, and within it, the most terrifying um, of all villains, Frank Booth, who my cat he's, is named after. <laughs> Amazing! Oh, I'm never looking after your yeah, cat. I, I think it's got. I think it's got that. Yeah, it definitely has that kind of horror of the normal. Yeah. You know, there's no super. It's not a supernatural element flying in. It's being terrified of reality and real people yeah. and real situations. It's a bit. Like, it's a bit like Twin Peaks as well. He had that kind of going on in that in that kind of yeah. series. Just the horror of what people can actually I mean, get up did to. Did you see the second series of Twin Peaks? Uh, the, the, yeah, the, the third series, the, the latest yeah, one. The latest um, one, yeah. I've only got, this is bad, I've only got up to episode 10. I would say stick with it, Prano, because that I think the last episode really oh, really, it really sticks yeah. in my mind. I need, you used to be a message, it, didn't you, it, bas it basically fucks with everything that you've had in yeah. your head about okay. Twin You sent me a message, kind of didn't you, Mark? You said, I, I think I need to just go off and digest this for a little bit. And I said, you watched the last episode? Yeah, yeah but I, I don't know what I feel about it yet. And it was like a few days before, we can't give it away because obviously Paul yeah. hasn't seen it, but it was a few days before you could actually talk to me about oh, wow, it. Wow, okay. Like, God, yeah. right, wow. It's, it's then, pretty crazy. But um, I'll tell you what, I saw uh, Doctor Sleep the other day. Has anybody seen that? No. The um, the so-called sequel to The Shining. Yeah. So it's yeah. a it's a it's a kind of follow-up story that Stephen King wrote, and Stephen King, who was so famously disappointed with The Shining, yeah. the way that turned out, uh, has clearly they've made it. They've made a, a film now called Doctor Sleep, yeah. which follows the story of Danny, who has now grown up and is Ewan McGregor, which immediately uh, put me off. I hate to say it, but immediately uh, was like, and, uh, sorry, Ewan, you know, you. And no Stephen way. King's been like, look. Stanley Kubrick fucked up the last one, okay? <laughs> I'm taking complete creative Prado's, control Prado's over this. shaking her head in disgust for our I'm going to take complete creative control. I won't, let the I won't let the shambles that was The Shining happen again. <laughs> I'm going to make it prop, and it's the most appalling Is it? Film. Oh. oh, it's awful. Oh, no. It, it, it's two and a half hours long. 
which is about two hours, 20 minutes oh, too long. Oh, no. It, it's awful. Yeah, it's terrible. I don't know what but, it is. No, but you... Don't take my word no. for it. It, I wasn't. I wasn't hugely drawn to it when I saw the trailer. I have to say, but um, mm. it's yeah. I, I have to disagree heartily with with, with uh, Mr. Mr. King, who I respect yeah. very much. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, yeah. On that one. My last film, I'd say, of my three. Yeah, yeah sorry. I was going to yeah, say Lost Highway, but I've I've realised that's boring to have two Lynch films because I, I mean I love Lost Highway, but there's a film called Let's Scare Jessica to Death which I would say is is my third favourite horror film. Oh. Not that well known, but it's know a that. 70s um, really haunting horror about a woman who's just come out of um, like a psychiatric home and she is taken by her boyfriend and her, her friend to live in a house um, where when they turn up, there's like a squatter, this woman who's been like living there. Oh. And... Um, oh. Jessica, the main character, starts to wonder if this woman is real or a ghost. I suppose you could mm. see, but and we don't know. It's all told through her point of view, so we don't know if Jessica's going mad or if there's something truly supernatural going on here. And it is just like uh, Zora Lampert, who plays Jessica, is mm. just incredible in that film. Like honestly, the first time it was recommended to me by Kim Newman. Um, and uh, he introduced it at the at the BFI, and so I was lucky enough to see it for the first time on the big screen, and it was just, amazing. it's amazing. I, if you can watch it, it's... Yeah. I love freaky 70s. Freaky 70s. Horror, horror movies. Yeah. Which is, have, you, have you ever seen, Prana, have you ever seen, uh, a, I think it's actually a short film, about 20 minutes, half an hour long, called The Phone Box. I think it's Italian. I think so. I don't know what the Italian title is. Italian or whatever. Phone box is an Italian probably. But it's, um, it's, it's, it's a short film. It's about 20 minutes long, 15, 20 minutes long. And I, I saw this when I was a kid on network TV. I'm sure they programmed it at like two in the afternoon because I saw it when I was about six or seven. And a mate of mine, he, he qualified that. He said, yeah, I saw this when I was a kid about the same time. And it's an, a guy, he walks into a phone box in a piazza and he uh, makes a call, can't quite get through, can't get out of the phone box. He's locked, oh. he's locked in. And he's banging on the windows. No one's listening to him. No one's bothering about him. He's locked in. A truck comes into the square. The guys hook the phone box up. They'd crane it onto the back. They drive him through town. He's banging on the windows. No one's listening to him. And then he gets driven down into some kind of basement warehouse and he just gets put with loads of other phone boxes all full of skeletons. <laughs> <laughs> and I swear they put this on Thames TV at like two in the afternoon when I was seven. Because it's been, it's, been, it's been burnt into my memory. Yeah. And you can get it on YouTube now. And I was so delighted because I literally hadn't seen the film in like 35 years. How old did you say you were when you saw that? I must have been six oh, or seven wow. when, I, yeah. when I saw wow. it. And coming up next it was, is, on, it was just on in the middle of there, yeah. yeah. Coming up next that is Metal Mickey, yeah. <laughs> that was Rainbow, but now some obscure 70s Italian horror. But those things that scare yeah. us as a kid, like, they, I don't know, do, do you oh. have other, other memories of, like, the things that really frightened you as, as children? I, I have a weird one, which was, it's something that's not frightening and it's something that I love dearly now, which was Terry Gilliam cartoons on the Monty Python show. Mm. So I, I mean, I was, I'm not that old that I saw them go out first, but they were obviously repeats. 
But when I was very, very small, like a two or three year old watching Monty Python repeats on TV and seeing some of his cartoons, he used to freak me out. Yeah. And there was one in particular where there was a tank chasing someone through a forest. And it just became my nightmares for mm. weeks. I had many nightmares yeah. about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I had a had a kind of consistent nightmare about um, uh, a film which I saw recently and is is not what I my my youthful experience felt it was uh, about um, the film Quatermass and the Pit, which actually you look at it now and it's a cheesy Hammer film, right? It's kind of it's got that funny kind of filmic look that they shot, you know, nineteen sixties kind of nineteen seventies film. But there's this terrifying moment here where they have to sort of kill this kind of alien uh, by crashing a crane into it. And it becomes this kind of devil in the sky. And it's this glowing devil face, which, of course, now looks hilariously terribly lo-fi. But that devil face was stuck in my childhood mind every night for years and years and years and years. What about you, Prana? What what would be well, yours? Well, I think there's two. There's two, and one of them goes back to Lynch. Uh, so I watched Twin Peaks um, at a very young age because I've got an older brother and sister. So mm. I wanted to do whatever they did when I was small, and um, and it was the backwards talking dwarf in Twin Peaks. Oh. I I watched oh, loads of stuff when I was a kid that. I, I shouldn't have watched that should have given me nightmares but it was that and I think it was just because my brain just didn't understand what this was and I had nightmares of that and then the other one that you've just reminded me of Aaron is um is the 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 girl in the witches from the book who gets oh, yeah. in the painting oh yes. yes that was just and I think that sort of influenced me in some way I mean I don't know how it's just this idea of being trapped in another realm that you can't Mm. where you can't be heard and no one knows that you're there and that's that's the that's the the experience of of having a nightmare in a way isn't it it's like you're in the nightmare and you can't shout I mean I, I don't know if anybody else has had this experience you're in a nightmare and you're trying to shout out saying get me out you know I'm wake up yeah. and your mouth is kind of somehow stuck because of course in real life you're paralyzed you're physically paralyzed so I think there's some connection with the, almost like the physical experience of having a nightmare and the nightmares that we tend to actually have and then that you so wonderfully turn into movies <laughs> yeah I know, well, that's the thing. I mean, film is the closest thing we have to our dreams, Mm, I suppose, as representations. And I guess horror is, they're the nightmares, right? Which are always your your most visceral uh, dreams. They're they're often the ones you remember for 20, 30 years, you know? I can remember nightmares I had when I was five. I'll 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 never never forget them. I was told once that we dream in 90-minute cycles, um, Mm. which I think is really interesting because... In my opinion, films should be ninety minutes. Yeah. Um, I know a lot yeah. of them are not ninety minutes anymore. No, but, you know that's the that's the Doctor Sleeping. Eh? <laughs> doctor Sleeps about three ninety minutes. And ironic because it's called Doctor Sleep as well. <laughs> yeah. Not a very good doctor, obviously. Yeah. You are listening to DIY Cinemacult.
I was looking, Prano, at your film, uh, your short Nasty. There's a kind of similarity and kind of storyline there. Was that the start of the idea for your um, The start was the feature. Um, so I had an idea okay. for a feature ages ago. I mean, if you imagine the short came after, then, then that was... That kind of tells you, yeah. Um, so I, I had this idea for a feature, which was, um, I was interested in the idea of film censorship. Um, and I'd been reading an article uh, about Hammer Horror and the era of Hammer Horror and how there was like a rule um, for censors, which was blood on the breast will make men commit rape. Um, and I was like, wow, okay, so what about, I mean, I kind of went to my childish brain a little bit and I was like, well, what about the male film censors? Are they gonna, you know, mm. it was mm. like, that was the starting yeah. point and it's gone a long way from that first thought. Um, but uh, I started working with my co-writer, Anthony Fletcher on the feature idea. And then funnily enough, uh, a short film funding scheme cropped up and I was like, oh, I've got another idea set in the same world. So it's, you know, my, my interest was in the video nasty era, basically the early interviews, yep. which is when in yeah. the UK VHS horror was born. And um, over here we had like a super conservative reaction to these films in that now horror could come into the home on VHS and people were terrified that these films were gonna influence um, young people mm. and vulnerable people and create the next generation of murderers and rapists. And the um, reaction to that was like uh, one of moral panic and social hysteria um, mm. that meant a lot of those films were banned. So we're talking about things like the Texas mm. Chainsaw Massacre and Cannibal Holocaust and the Evil Dead, things that now are being remade. Um, and, and so that was the period I was really super interested in, um, in terms of like, you know, British culture and, and our history, but also a really pivotal moment in like horror. Um, and so I kind of was like, oh, well, I'd be interested to tell a story of a, a young boy at that period as well, mm. rather than just an adult film censor. So that was how Nasty was born. And I applied for a BFI film funding scheme um, with this short and didn't get it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I crowdfunded um, and made the film anyway, which was nasty. Um, and we shot that on 16 mil um, oh, over wow. five days. Um, and then I was in post with that for a really long time because it had quite a lot of like visual effects. And I was really lucky that mm. I got Framestore on board for that. Um, mm, but fantastic. they were obviously working at the weekends and in their downtime. So there was various things that kind of meant that the post-production took a bit longer. Um, but the film did really well and we went to like uh, quite a lot of, uh, we went to over a hundred film festivals with, with Wow. That. And I think it was a really good showpiece for the feature, even though it mm, took me out yeah. of the feature for a couple of years. It meant that when I, well, there were two aspects really. One was that people could see what I was talking about a little bit more clearly mm. and the success of the short helped me with pitching the feature but Absolutely. also it was yeah. really helpful for me creatively to um to sort of explore the world and pick the bits that I wanted to carry forward into the feature even though the feature is about a different character it's an adult female film mm -hmm. censor yeah. 
um, rather than a, a child, and it's a different story. Yeah. But it, it's they're ba they're very um, intertwined. And, and where where are you at, at the moment? So I mean, kind of, we were, we were chatting in a podcast just done about the fact that a lot of movies that are now in lockdown are either really lucky or they're really, really, really unlucky, as in if they still had 10 days to shoot or if they uh, were in you know various other sort of states of production, they could be really having a nightmare right now or actually right now is a brilliant time to have a movie in the can. So where, whereabouts are you and what do you feel about being in lockdown in this sort of moment with I your mean, film? I, th I think there are films that are in much worse like not worse positions, but like they're a place. I feel I really, really sympathise with anyone who is about to have their premiere at a film festival or mm. about to release their film in the cinema because these are films that we work on for years and years and, you know, you have like this uh, vision of, of how it's going to play out and I think to be that close and then... Yeah. You know, I I think also if you were literally about to shoot, that must be really, really hard. So we're in um, late stage post uh, picture edit. So mm -hmm. we do have, um, we were actually just about to do a few days pickups, um, which mm. uh, got cancelled, obviously, because of lockdown. So mm -hmm. we're currently in this slightly like limbo space where... Um, you know, we don't, we just need a few more days filming and then we can finish picture post and move right. into um, sound and music. But I think it's nice in a way to have a little bit of headspace. We're, you know, making this film with um, really, really exciting partners like BFI Film 4 and Film Wales, which is brilliant. Um, but then obviously the schedule is like, it's intense. And so mm, you yes. come off the back of the shoot and you're like, exhausted like no no one can prepare you for how exhausted I remember asking a friend before I shot like at what point were you exhausted on the shoot and and she said oh I was exhausted by the end of prep and I was like really <laughs> and before you even started filming and then I, I understood you know it, <laughs> like and we had like night shoots and filming in forests and all this kind of thing so it was it yeah. was like really knackering and you kind of come off and you feel like you've been like run over or something then you're into the edit and and it's a different pace but it's because you're um you know once you get into the process of showing the cut to your execs and and things then you're starting to like work to the next screening and so the pressure yes. is just it just changes yeah so has this lockdown afforded you a bit of time for reflection or are people still keeping the schedule quite upbeat no it's definitely because of where we are with the pickups it's meant we've we me and my editor have like um continued a little bit uh without mm. the pressure of other people's eyes and stuff and which is quite nice. It's quite nice to have suddenly a little bubble of space where you can look at the film really and nice. just kind of run through it. I think it. it's been, yeah. creatively, it's been really... And also, like, for me personally, just to have a, a rest. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's actually, I think, been currently been good, but we don't know what happens next. And that's where the anxiety comes in a little bit because when, when, when will we be able to pick it up? I think, you know... 
we're lucky in that we're, we only need a tiny bit of filming and it's a small crew, it's a few days. We're not looking at like five weeks of filming and we don't have crowd scenes and all the things that are gonna potentially become uh, difficult if social distancing has to become part of filming. Yeah. I, I mean, how did the? I mean, because it's, it's for the for the listener of this podcast who's maybe on the DIY side of things. How does a collaboration between so many quite big broadcast um, kind of agencies get together? BFI, Film Four. I mean, you know, Creative England. How does something like that come together? Because uh, you know, we've sort of independently applied for a microwave, or we've applied for uh, a Film Four sort of thing, but. How does something like that work together, particularly in this country? It seems like you've almost got everybody in this country in some way. Mm. We started off, uh, me, my co-writer and my producer submitted to the microwave scheme. Um, mm -hmm. I think it must have been 2016. Um, we didn't get onto that. Um, and then we redrafted the treatment and I'm Welsh, even though I don't sound Welsh. Um, I'm Welsh, so uh, I uh, was fortunate enough that I can apply for Film Wales um, funding. So we went mm. to Film Wales and applied for development funding and we got the development funding. And honestly, it was just like an amazing, you know, you're so yeah. used to no's. Um, you're so used to that email saying, sorry, this time we haven't been yeah, I got one yesterday. Lot, lots of people. There was many, many applications. It's so high this year. Yeah. And I was having a really rubbish time in my personal life as well at that point. And I was like really, really miserable. And then I got this phone call from my producer saying like, we've got support for our film. And it's like Amazing. a whole new um, way of looking at it in that I'm going to you know, be able to take the time to actually write it. So we got that. And then we, the, the way the funding works is um, usually you're, you get the funding for a draft of a script. So we'd, we'd uh, applied for the first draft. So we wrote the first draft. And then I think it was the second draft that we went to Creative England. So they were existed in a slightly different capacity at that point. Yeah. And this is the yeah. eye features thing that you would know? No, oh. it, was, it was Creative England as a funding body so they mm -hmm. also did development funding at that point they came on board and then um i'm not sure which draft it would have been that we went to the bfi but we also did before so we put an application into the bfi um which is nowadays bfi film for and i think bbc you can just apply any time of the year whereas things oh, like okay. film wales have application uh, funding like uh, deadline no, windows yeah yeah whereas they've made it rolling at places like the BFI um, so we'd applied mm. for that but we also thought well we may not get that so we applied for other things um, including the frontiers um, scheme which is specifically for genre and that's a finance forum um, for genre films that's uh, run it's organised by a, a, a group that, that's sort of born out of Cannes Film Festival and uh, Fantasia. Um, and it sounds really dry, a finance and packaging forum, but it was amazing. And basically they select, I think it's 12 projects a year. They have three different 
uh, schemes a year. So the one we attended was like they pick 12 projects. You go for four days. Ours, ours was in Amsterdam and you spend four days kind of like pitching your project and doing Q&As for a film yeah. you haven't even made yet, which was really And cool. definitely not yeah. hanging around in cafes, drinking alcohol and smoking <laughs> normal cigarettes. None of that. None, None of that. Of that. Um, and, and it's a group of 12 film, or 12 film projects and a group of financiers, which is financiers who love horror. Um, wow. So you're in a room Amazing. with these people and you're workshopping your film with potential financiers. Not only Some of them are going to be interested in your film, and some of them aren't, but they're still going to be able to offer you advice. So that was amazing. And um, and we, we kind of went through that. We ended up pitching at Cannes um, through them as well. And then luckily the BFI came on board um, mm. and then they spoke to Film 4 and then Film 4 came on board. So, um, And do you think there's a kind of a snowball thing, as in once you've got a big one piece of the puzzle suddenly you're a bit more of a viable enterprise and then something else will come along and then there's a snowball effect as in yeah. you just seem like the the real deal yeah i do think there's an element of of that i i think it's about i, I always say this to filmmakers that you need to find your champions because mm. people who are um working in the background in the film industry do talk to each other and so if mm. Film Wales have a really exciting project that they're, you know, working with a filmmaker on. They're going to tell so and so, and then when that comes through to them, you know, it, it means that people are more aware of it. Or any yeah. way that you can kind of get some leverage and some visibility. Uh, mm. that, and there's there's you know online platforms that do that now for for, for filmmakers as well, like short of the week and mm. that kind of thing oh uh, yeah of course yeah and what i mean how have you sort of funded things previous to that as in you talked about a little bit about crowdfunding and stuff so you've done a bit of the schemes you've done a bit of crowdfunding you've done some of the big stuff how how else do you does you know again for the diy filmmaker who might well be listening in what are the other processes that you can potentially go through my two favorite projects for talking about diy filmmaking are a poltergeist and house they're both music videos and mm. both made for under 200 pounds um so let's say we've already touched on poltergeist but house um it's a music video so you know it's not it's not it's a narrative music video but yeah, yeah. um i made that on 160 pounds um I, you were really splashing out that day on kind of uh, beer and fags, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was working in a pub at the time and I think I was doing some extra work like for a PR company and I tried to like organise my finances. So it was like anything I made from that job I lived on and anything I made from that job went towards my films. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was paying really, really low rent, like, but I didn't have a door to my bedroom, so I didn't have no heating. <laughs> Um, uh, movie sounding like the start of a horror movie yeah. <laughs> but it's just a with, with house the kind of costumes and location and yeah. everything are so key to it's got a real the success of it just visually you must have just is it just bringing in lots of favors did you have the location in mind i think one of the best bits of advice i could give to somebody trying to do something on no money is to 
write something around a location that they've already got access to because if yeah. you write like oh this film that's set in a casino or a castle or you know it's like okay <laughs> exterior <laughs> space <laughs> and then you start looking um. at locations and it's a thousand pounds an hour and it's like <laughs> and yeah. i basically um i found this house again next door to my house um and uh, my landlord at the time had keys to this place and my housemate came back going, oh my God, you've got to see this place. You're going to love it. And I went in and it was like walking into a doll's house. Um, it well. crashed, all boarded up. Um, and I was like, Amazing. I have to film something here. And I had all these ideas for shorts. And I was like, maybe I could do a music video. And I basically, I just had this idea about this like creepy doll's house where all there were all these like dead dolls that were waking up and they didn't know what had happened to them um and there was like this horrible little girl who'd been torturing her her dolls um and that that was such a really that was i love that music video i'm so proud of it and i'm proud of everybody it and, looks great and it, it won a, a uk music video award which was really wow. cool and when i picked up the award i was so drunk um, in my speech, <laughs> I think I said something like, it almost cost me as much as the whole budget of the film to come here tonight. I had to buy a ticket <laughs> and it was like £115 for me. My, oh, by that shit. point, I'd got representation as a music video director and my rep was like, you have to go, you have to go. Like, really encouraging me, sort of as if, you know, you're going to win. And um, And so I bought this ticket and I was, yeah, I've been reminded of that speech by since. <laughs> <laughs> so going back, Prano, to Censor, uh, your debut feature, um, you had a writing partner on that. And correct me if I'm wrong, I seem to remember seeing on social media Skype Zoom calls going on between you. Were you working remotely yeah. or you were? So what, what kind of, how did that well, work? Well, he lives in Uruguay. <laughs> Um, most of the time. Okay. He didn't live there permanently <laughs> when we started the project, actually. And he still comes back and forth. But most of the time he is there. He, he's a theatre director out there and writer, obviously. Um, and I think co-writers, from what I've learned, work... Everybody works differently. Like, some people really want to be in the same room and they want to be, like, pacing around and acting it out and stuff. Whereas mm. Anthony and I are more like we come together, we discuss ideas, um, we kind of bounce ideas around and then we kind of go away and do some writing and then we send it to each other, look back over it and then come back together. So it, it's, you know, mm. we tend to work in isolation and then come together for conversation. Which is handy, handy right now, I'm guessing, in terms of writing. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was you, you, you kind of, you saw this all coming, Prano. You saw the future. <laughs> so, and, and how does it work in terms of, because there is that kind of classic image of there's one guy who paces around the room and there's another guy at the typewriter yeah. in terms of collaboration. How did it work in terms of who's finally putting the pages together? Um, so how, well, the way we did it was we wrote a really, really tight outline, um, scene by scene, and then we went through, we literally went through the outline and decided who wrote what scene. <laughs> and and right. sometimes ah. that, that was how we did the first draft. Um, sometimes that would go by character. So you've got your main, for, in, in Censor, there's, um, it's very much like single POV, the main characters in almost every single scene 
um, and then she yeah. moves through certain worlds with other characters. So, you know, he took on certain characters and I took this to keep that um, through line for those. And, yeah, um, yeah. and then we kind of put it together and went, well, what's this now? And, um, and then we sort of flip flop it back and forwards um, between us. So one of us will do a pass on a scene and then throw it to the other one and we'll do a pass. So it's quite um, mixed really in that sense. I was interested because obviously we're called DIY Cinema Cult and uh, we've been, uh, what episode are we on again, Mark? I can't remember. Episode eight. I think this is eight. Which is a magic number. Episode eight. Yeah, lucky number eight, which is pretty, I think we've been very productive in in lockdown thus far. And then I realised the other day that some of the photos we've been putting on the Facebook group are of kind of cult members dancing around and jumping around. And uh, and some of them were Rajneesh kind of... They were, yeah. So, I mean, you're from yeah. that kind of background, but obviously your story of it is not the usual story people might talk about in terms of, you know, being part of a kind of religious organisation. So <laughs> anything, and, and I wonder how that uh, feeds into the sort of interest you have in terms of films. Yeah, so my parents in the 70s, Jane and Paul, they were called back then, uh, decided to go travelling in India and um, they discovered Bhagwan Rajneesh uh, mm-hmm. and the uh, ashram in Pune, and they took sannyas, which means that you have your name changed to a sannyasin name. And they came back called Shabdam and Divyam. Um, and they. It sounds like Welsh names to me, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then they didn't um, want to like force that upon their children. I wasn't born at this point, by the way. Uh, they didn't want to, like, you know, make their children be that as well. It was only until my brother was a bit older he decided he wanted to be a sannyasin as well. So um, he took sannyas, and then I think my sister thought, well, I might as well, because <laughs> he. <is. laughs> so by the time I was born, the, the whole family was sannyasins. Mm-hmm. And so I was given sannyas as a baby. Basically, from my point of view, I grew up in a sannyasin household. We never mm-hmm. lived in a commune because my mum didn't want to share her children with anybody else, um, yeah. the upbringing of her children. So we lived near a commune at one point and we kind of lived around other sannyasins quite a bit. Um, from my point of view, it, it, I think, you know, I grew up doing meditation and reading stories from all um, religious backgrounds because Mm. in Osho's stories he would talk about um, Buddhism and Christianity and Muslim you know that Mm. it was about taking those stories um, and learning from them and I think it kind of allowed me um, to well it allowed me to go to India when I was quite young and going to India meant that I met in the ashram I met um, kids from all over the world from um, I was in school with kids from all over the world for a period when I was there when I was 10 and so for me it was like a really positive um, thing that has never it's not a religion because there's no kind of you have to do this or you have to do that there's no real rules as far as I'm concerned Um, 
I think it just allowed me to grow up with a certain set of like values um, in life. I've grown up being used to people being like, oh, are you part of a cult? And <laughs> I just think, I honestly just find it amusing because it's like my life has been relatively similar to other people in terms of my upbringing. It's not, yeah, yeah. you know, there's nothing cultish whatsoever about being a sannyasin. Well, now you're in the yeah. DIY cinema cult, which is the, the deepest, darkest cult of them all. Who knows what's <laughs> going to happen here? It's the one Who that, knows what's going to happen I mean, they'll be now. making documentaries about this cult and they'll be a lot darker than yeah. Wild Wild Country. I'm yeah. be sure of that. Um, well, it's been fascinating talking to you, Prano. I have to say it's been been a real pleasure and um, I think it's going to be a fabulous, uh, fabulous episode. So... Yeah, I've absolutely loved chatting to you about horror and all and all the all things oh, aside. So and best of luck for censor as well. Can't wait to see it. Yeah, can't wait to see it. We'll... Do you want to shout where people can find your uh, like a website or an Instagram? Oh or yeah, like you that? can. I mean, I've got pranobaileybond dot com, very um, originally named website, uh, and I'm on Twitter um, under the same name. Fantastic. Well, we Perfect. can't wait to see the film. And uh, cheers, I think. Yeah. Cheers, cheers is an all. Cheers. cheers. Nice one. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. I've actually run out of uh, tonic, so this is pretty neat for me. Ouch. <laughs> oh, no, it's been so lovely yeah, chatting it's been to really you. Nice. I've it's really enjoyed yeah. it. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, chin chin. Chin chin. <laughs> See you, Take it easy. Bye. Bye. on twitter at diy cinema cult or on instagram we are diy underscore cinema underscore cult seek out the diy cinema cult group on facebook or why not email us at diy cinema cult at gmail.com